I would just like to add my word of appreciation to his, to all who have made this week a success, as successful as it has been. I think sometimes we forget that every person who attends a service is a contributor. If you come with an open spirit and an open heart, and someone comes in with one that's closed and sits down next to you, it's much more difficult for him to stay closed with you open. And so the person who sits in the congregation has as much to do with the success and the effectiveness of the service, oftentimes, as the one who stands in the pulpit. So I would add my word of appreciation to all those who have had any part in this week. I have sensed your lift, the lift of your prayers, and have been humbled and have been filled with gratitude for it. Oftentimes, history turns on extremely small hinges, and significant events take place, and people do not even know that anything unique has occurred. In reading the gospel sometimes, there are great events that transpire, and we are so busy reading that we do not really sense what was taking place at the moment. The third chapter of the gospel of Mark is one of those points, and I hope you have a testament with you and that you will turn and look. The third chapter begins with a story from the life of our Lord where he goes into a synagogue and finds there a man who has a withered hand. It is not an ordinary occasion because there is a group of people who have come to observe him on this particular occasion. If you will read the first two chapters of the Gospel of Mark, you will know something about the makeup of the congregation in that synagogue on that Sabbath because there were Pharisees, scribes, representatives of the temple here that were here because they had heard Jesus speak on other days and they had seen him act. And they felt that exactly the thing that did happen might happen and they wanted to be sure that they were observing. They were looking for some hand hold on him in order that they might condemn him. And there was nothing that was more sacred to the Jews than their Sabbath. It was sacred enough that a Jew would rather die on the Sabbath than lift up a sword to defend himself. And oftentimes in the days of the Maccabees and the days of the Romans, there were Jews who died on the Sabbath day, Jewish soldiers, because they, their enemy knew that they would not fight on that day, and so they arranged their plans so that they could catch them, trap them on the Sabbath day. Nothing was more sacred. And it was Jewish law that a man should not work on the Sabbath day. And they felt we cannot trap Jesus in his personal life. It is without question. We really are having difficulty trapping him in his teaching. If we could just catch him in a violation of the Sabbath, we would have a right to stone him. We would have a right to destroy him. And so they watched him as he came into the synagogue because there was there a man with a withered hand. And they watched to see whether he would heal the withered hand because if he did, to them it would be an act of work and they would have that with which they might accuse him. So while they watched, Jesus turns and seeks out the man with the withered hand and he says to him, come forth, stand forth. And he said to the man with the withered hand and to those who were gathered in that synagogue, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. 
were ready to let him trap himself, but they were not going to give him any way out. And when he had looked around upon them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. The man with the withered hand put it forward, and immediately his hand was restored whole. The withered one, just like the other. The Pharisees went forth, and straightway took counsel with their bitterest political enemies, the Herodians, and they initiated the plans then to destroy Jesus. Now that's the context, and that's the mood of the day. Now the common people were extremely excited, and the multitudes found in Jesus an answer to their needs, and so they mobbed him. The extent is indicated in these next few, ver few verses. There was such commotion that Jesus felt that he should with withdraw, retire. He was, had that strange mixture in his life of being ready to risk his life at any moment and yet protecting himself lest the purposes of his father be in some sense aborted. And so he withdraws with those friends whom he has gathered to the seashore. And when he gets there, he finds that there is a great multitude that has followed him. Will you notice how many people were there? They came from Galilee. They came from Judea. They came from Jerusalem. They came from Idumea. They came from Transjordan. They came from the area in the north about Tyre and Sidon. And Mark is not stretching it when he says, a great multitude having heard the many great things that he had done, came to him. So he spoke to his disciples, and he got a small boat so that they would not press him into the sea. He had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him. He did not wait, they did not wait for him to touch for them, him to touch them. They pressed those with plagues and unclean spirits, and they pressed in to touch him in order that they might be healed. It was then, with all of that press about him at the seashore, that he turns and leaves the seashore and goes to the mountain, again to get away. And as he goes, he calls to him a group of friends, and he says, I want you particularly to go with me. One of these is a man named Simon, whom he surnames Peter. Another is a man named James, who is the son of Zebedee, and he has a brother named John. Another is a man by the name of Andrew who has a brother named Philip and both Philip and Andrew are taken. He takes with him Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot. The word Iscariot simply means a man from, from particular city. And so it is a title attached to it. Judas goes with him. Now when he is there, he takes 12 of these, these 12 that he names, and he speaks to them specifically and says the battle is at hand. They now have declared themselves, they are planning to destroy me. And now I must prepare for the, for the job that must be completed before they crucify me. And so I will need assistance to help me in my work. He said, I need some who can go through the countryside preaching for me. 
because we must cover the, the we must cover the countryside. He said, I need you to have power so that you can do messianic works in my name so that the countryside will know without question that Messiah has come. All men will not see me, but perhaps those who do not see me will see you. And when they see my power in you, they will know that Messiah has come. And you must have power to cast out devils. And so with power and authority over human sicknesses and demonic spirits and with the power to preach the gospel, I must have you to go out and help me in my work. But he said, you know, even more than the responsibility of preaching the gospel and the responsibility of performing messianic works in my name, healing the sick, and casting out devils, there's something else I want for three years. And that is, I want you to be with me. I read this passage for many years before I noticed that. I thought that the prime thing in my life was to preach the gospel. But as I looked at that passage, I began to realize that the prime thing in any man's life, and above all the servant of God, is not the service of God. It is not the work of God. God is not primarily concerned about getting servants to serve him. He is looking for friends and for sons. He is looking for those that will come into such an intimate relationship with him that when they go out to serve him, it will not be duty that takes them there. They will be simply doing the thing that a friend or a son could not help from doing and it will be a ministry that comes out of communion with God. You know, uh, the prime thing in any preacher's life is not in the pulpit, but it's in the prayer closet before he ever goes to the pulpit. And it is the knowledge of God that he gains somewhere else that determines any effectiveness in pulpit ministry. And if a man has power to heal sicknesses and cast out devils, Unless it is rooted in that kind of communion and fellowship with God, it falls far short of pleasing the one who is called him. The prior thing and the important thing is that men might come to know God and their lives be lived out of that intimate knowledge and their service be rendered out of that intimate acquaintance with him, that familiarity with the one whom the disciples called the Christ and came to look upon as a friend. Now that should not be surprising, and I am amazed that I read the Bible so long before I noticed that. Because if you read the scripture, you will find that there's a great deal of scripture that indicates that the prime reason that God calls us is to call us to himself, not to his service. And that the call to himself is the first. You get it in that familiar little text at the end of Scripture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and will open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. And I will be as intimate with him as a wife is with a husband or a husband is with a wife, as a son is with a parent or a parent is with a son, are certainly as intimate as two close friends who get together for a dinner date. Now that is the 
That is what he is speaking about, and that is the thing to which God calls me and to which he calls you. You find that at the end of Scripture, but you really, if you look at it, you'll find that that's what the call is all the way through from beginning to end. The climax of that creative process is not, is not found in Genesis 1 and 2, but it is found in Genesis 3 when we are told about God coming down in the cool of the day and saying, Adam, where are you? He was looking for him. And the fulfillment of Adam's existence and Eve's existence was to be in that kind of fellowship, immediate, very different from ours. We live in a fallen world. We see through a glass darkly. A veil is between. But in that day, what God intended was immediate and face-to-face -face fellowship with himself. You will remember that when he called the father of the faithful Abraham, he said, walk before me and be thou perfect. Keep your heart clean and your motive pure and sincere. But the thing I want is for you to walk with me. And the major thing that you will find about Abraham is that throughout the course of his life, he walked with God like that man Enoch who was before him. And he, became, he was called a friend of God because he did that. In Moses, no matter what the great points may be in your mind or mine, I have no question but that in God's eyes, the most significant moment in his life was that moment when he talked with him face to face, when he showed him himself, and when he came back to his people and his face glistened so that they could not afford to look at him because he had been with God in the secrecy or in the silence and in the, in the remoteness from the ordinary people of the top of Sinai and in immediate fellowship with him. I don't need to run through scripture, but that's it. He calls us not to service. This is the thing that makes Christianity different from all the rest of the religions of the world. Because in the other religions, men are called to serve their God. But we are called to fellowship with him, to walk with him, to live with him. And so Jesus now takes 12 and he says, I want you to stay with me. And for three years, he kept them very close and very intimate with him as he moved about through Palestine, demonstrating that the title that had been given to him was really the fulfillment of his mission. He had been called Emmanuel, which means simply God with us. And so as they moved about, the Savior was with them and they knew that kind of fellowship. Now, you know, that has a romantic sound to it, and it has a mystical touch to it, and it has a pious touch to it, and uh, a sentimental touch to it, and we like the notion of God coming and walking with us, and it sounds very pleasant. But do you know there is nothing sentimental about the reality? Because there is nothing in the world that is more difficult than just exactly that. And all you have to do is read the scripture to find that it is not a very easy thing to walk with God and it is not a very easy thing to have fellowship with him. Adam and Eve didn't succeed very long and their successors in that pre-Diluvian world did not either because by the time you come to chapter 6, not only is man on the outside of the garden, but you will remember that God is saying that the thoughts and imaginations of man's heart they are wicked and wicked only, evil and evil only, and the only thing I know to do is to destroy them and see if I can find another group of people who will walk with me. And so in the beginning of chapter 10, there is a new start. We start all over again with one family. Now, to begin fellowship with God. 
You go through the scripture and you will remember that uh, the life of Israel is illustrative of this. God delivered Israel in magnificent, mighty works, acts, miracle acts, bringing them out of Egypt and out of Egyptian bondage. He brought them through the Red Sea and into the, into the wilderness and provided for them in daily provision there and brought them to Sinai and said, Now you are to be my people and I am to be your God. And the people said to Moses, You go up and talk to him. We're afraid to talk to him. You go up into that furnace and tell him anything that he wants us to do, we will do. We will be his people and we will walk with him and we want him to be our God and we want him to walk with us. And you will remember that Moses spent 40 days. And when he came down, they already had turned their backs upon the Lord God and had built for themselves idols. And God said to Moses, stand aside and let me destroy them because they will not walk with me. There it is, and it's the biblical story. You know that Israel came to the place where the Nori was split into two kingdoms and the northern kingdom in the 8th century B.C. was carried into captivity never to be brought back. By the time a century and a half had passed, the southern kingdom was evil enough and apostate enough that God carried them into Babylonian captivity and it was, a, it was years, decades before they came straggling back. And when the Messiah came, the one for whom they looked, the one that was their promise and the promise to them, when he came, they took him outside of a city and crucified him. You will remember that his disciples had their problems. And when you come to Calvary, his mother is in the distance and a few women and one of his disciples, but he died alone because his disciples did not stick with him. Well, that's, that's a tragic picture, isn't it? But that's the real picture. There are not many people who walk with God. You go through Christian church history and you will find that it's a, it's a comparable story. All that you have to do is list the succession of major cities in Christian history to know that it is easier to begin a Christian life than it is to finish one. And it is easier to start a Christian culture than it is to conclude one. Jerusalem, Pentecost, 3,000 converts in a day, but you would hardly call Jerusalem today a Christian city. I think as close as I have come to being violently angry in my mature life and since the sanctifying grace of Christ came to my heart was in Israel at the merchandising in sacred places and sacred things. Prostitution of the holy thing. But you take the major centers of Christendom from Antioch to Constantinople or Istanbul to Alexandria to Rome to Germany to England to the United States. And what do you get? Your mind instantly is filled with memories of Christian roots and Christian witness and Christian ministry and powerful Christian church that now remain only as a memory in the pages of history. I think that God intended us to understand that when he looked at his disciples and said, I want you to be with me, I think he intended that we understand that that is a big order and it is not as 
sentimental as some of our gospel songs occasionally might imply. One of the things that uh, has impressed me is how difficult it is to keep any institution thoroughly devoted to the evangelical gospel faithful to it. You know the story in American educational institutions. You know the story in churches. I was sitting on a rooftop my one trip to the Middle East, one 24-hour stay in Greece. I was sitting on in a restaurant on the top of a hotel, roof of a hotel, looking across at the Acropolis. Elsie and I had a table, and there were just, there were six seats at the table, and the room was pretty well filled, and in came two couples and sat down, or asked if they could sit with us. And so, very charming, dashing young man, an older man, uh, and their wives, and as we sat and chatted, the younger man turned and looked at me and said, uh, what is your business? And I said, uh, Christian education. He said, are you a preacher? And I said, yes. He said, what denomination? And I said, Methodist. In a few moments, we were served, and when the food was placed on our table, and both of these men were laymen, and I knew that they were laymen, the man who had started the conversation looked across at me and said, Would you object if I returned thanks? And so I, the preacher, looked back at the layman and said, No, I would be very grateful. Elsie and I both would be very glad if you would return thanks to God for our food. That started a friendship. We went, spent, traveled around the Middle East together and found he was an American businessman rather successful one. As a businessman, he found great needs in his life, and he was teaching a Sunday school class in a prominent Methodist church, if I named it, you would know it, many of you. And he said, I found spiritual needs that had not been met, and so I began to search, and he said, I came to a genuine experience of the new birth. And he said, I didn't know what to do with that experience. My life was transformed. He said, you know, uh, I went to my pastor and told him about it, and my pastor said, well, that's very interesting. John Wesley had an experience like that. And Jim said to me, you can't imagine how excited I was because I'd never heard about that in my church, and now they told me that the founder of my church had had the same experience I had had. And he said, could I learn about that? And he said, oh, no problem. I will give you a copy of Wesley's journal. So he said, I took John Wesley's journal and began to devour it. Then he said, I began to take his journal to my Sunday school class with my young people and began to tell them about John Wesley and what Christ did in John Wesley's, John Wesley's heart and in his life and what a marvelous thing happened in John Wesley's life and how that same thing could happen in their lives. He said, one day the pastor sent for me. And the pastor said, the parents of the young people that you're teaching are very disturbed at what you're teaching them. And he said, we really think that we'd better let you drop that Sunday school class and let us get someone else to teach it. That fellow is Mr. Stake and heads the Mr. Stake chain across the United States. It's not easy, is it? I had a good friend who was, when I was at Princeton, was telling me about it. He was from South Norwalk, Connecticut, joining the YMCA in South Norwalk. He said, I went in. He had been, his father was a 
uh, was an oil man in Latin America, and he uh, spent a good bit of his life in Latin America. He uh, down there met uh, old Dr. Pearson, B.H. Pearson, some of you know about. B.H. Pearson sat down with the, that young man at dinner and talked with him about Christ and led him to Christ. God laid his hand on him and called him to preach, and so he came home and came to Princeton to go to seminary. And he went to his home. None of his family was Christian, and he needed exercise, so he went down to the YMCA, and he said, when I signed up, he said, I was fascinated. They put a little slip under my nose to sign, and I noticed it said, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord? And he said, I was astounded. He said, I didn't know that the YMCA had anything to do with Christ. And so he said, I looked across at the fellow who was signing me up and said, what does that mean? And the fellow who was signing me up, oh, he said, that doesn't mean a thing. Just check it and go ahead and sign your name. But do you know why the YMCA was founded? It was founded for two purposes. It was founded out of the revivals of Dwight L. Moody so that young men could have their bodies developed and they could be well physically and so that they could be led to know Christ in an intimate way. And the C in YMCA was the most important word in its iron. That's not the way we usually find it. But it's not only true of things like that. It can be true of Asbarians. I was pastoring in an area where we had a number of Asbury graduates. I knew one who was pastor of the largest church in our area, and the United Methodist Church, and he was also another who was pastor of the Unitarian Church in the community. And the thing that intrigued me was that the difference between the pastor of the Unitarian Church and the Methodist pastor of whom I speak, and thank God this isn't true of all, but the difference was that the Methodist was more aggressively humanistic and anti-evangelical than the pastor of the Unitarian Church. So the fact that a man is a graduate of Asbury doesn't give you any indication as to where he stands in his commitment to Jesus Christ. So that when we talk about Christ calling us to walk with him, he's not speaking about emotional, sentimental things. He's speaking about the basic issues of ultimate obedience to himself. I'm glad that Jesus gave us that parable of the soil and told us about the sower that went forth to sow and some of the seed fell to the wayside. And the birds of the air came and devoured it. And some fell on stony ground where it had little soil and it sprang up very quickly. But since it had no root, when the sun came, it quickly died. Some fell among thorns. And as they sprang up, the fruit, as the plants sprang up, they were choked out by the thorns that were there. I'm so grateful he told about some that fell in good ground and brought forth some thirty-fold and some sixty-fold and some ninety and a hundred-fold. And if Jesus did not expect all of his seed to stand, we should not be too surprised when all of ours do not. 
But when I come to a week like this at Asbury College, the thing that concerns me and the thing that keeps beating in the back of my head is how many young people are there in the student body at Asbury who will come through a week like this without getting the kind of roots established and the kind of experience and the kind of commitment to Christ confirmed that will give them the kind of basis on which a life of walking with God can be established. Because it's easier to say that we know him and that we walk with him than it is to really do it. I think there's an unusual danger in a community like this. And that danger is that uh, it's very easy to take on the form here and some way or other dabble with the reality or to assume much of the appearance of being Christian but never really come to the place where we belong wholly to him. I think sometimes that there is a worldliness at Asbury that's remarkably Christian. A student comes from a Christian home and goes to a university and gets into a fraternity and his worldliness is expressed perhaps in drinking for the first time. That used to be true. Now they usually do it in high school or involved in sex, or involved in other things like this. He's away from home, and so he samples and tastes these things, and we speak about that as worldliness. All that's happening is that he's conforming to his crowd. And I think sometimes that drinking whiskey at a university has the same religious value as some Asbury students' presence in a prayer meeting. Maybe I should turn that around say that some of our religious observances and appearances at Asbury may not have a bit more moral and ethical and Christian character in the heart of the person involved than what would be spoken of as worldliness in a university campus because here we're in a new group and it's conformity. And I'll tell you, Conformity at Asbury will lead to conformity when one leaves Asbury. And the important thing is that a person probes through appearances and forms to reality that can never be shaken. I'm grateful in my own life for two experiences that were in a sense sort of supposed to be identical, but they were not. I remember the first time that I ever heard the gospel preached publicly so that I could understand it and an invitation to Christian discipleship was given. It was in a Baptist church and I've always been grateful for that. And I remember that in that service I responded and went forward. And I remember that the evangelist talked with me and prayed with me. I was in my early teens. It was a very moving experience. And I walked out that night, and I can remember going home, and there was a good feeling inside. There was a religious feeling, which was somewhat new for me. There was a feeling of obedience, which was somewhat new for me. There was a sense of uh, relief and release, and I was glad I did it. But do you know, three weeks later, there was no essential change in my life? 
It was a religious experience. But it was not redemption. It was some six months after that that I was in a Bible class, far less drama, drama to it. The lady who talked turned and looked at me and asked me if I were a Christian. And I looked back and said, oh no, I knew me too well to answer otherwise. And she said, wouldn't you like to be a Christian? And I said, yes, I would. And so that morning, we prayed together. And when I walked out, a transformation had occurred. Things that I had not loved before, I now found a passion within my heart for. Things I had loved that I shouldn't have, I found now something within me that recoiled at them. I was a new creature. Now, I'm sure that the evangelist that night walked away and considered me a convert. I was a statistic, but not a convert. You know it's possible to go through four years of Asbury and be a statistic. But it isn't necessary. Because the invitation is to any man who will come. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. And if he partakes of the water of life, when he goes away, he will live. And it will be an eternal living that he does. What a difference between these two things. One, you will come out and live in a world that's make-believe, one of your own creating, and one that you have somewhat in a sense imposed upon your life that is from the outside in and doesn't penetrate all the way through to the ego to you. As the pressures of life come, you can count on it. It will cost you too much to keep it. You may do it slowly or you may do it suddenly. I've watched Asbury graduates do it both ways. You will say that's excess baggage. And you will either dump it bit by bit or you will throw it all overboard at a shot. But there is an experience of God that can begin at the center of one's being. And then when the transformation is there, I don't worry too much about the outside and the fringes. Because if there's obedience to Christ at the heart, ultimately the totality of the life will be brought into conformity with the will of God. Now, as we come to the close of these meetings, that's the question I would like to ask you. One thing to know about Christ, one thing to know about Christianity. It's one thing to be an Asbarian, one thing to be a person who lives in Wilmore. But it's another thing to walk with God. Do you? I don't know whether anybody knew what had happened in Abraham's life or not. But the day that Abraham began to walk with God was one of those small hinges that we talked about in human history. History's never been the same since. And the day that you begin to walk with God will be a day like that. Because it'll be a day that leads to life and to reality and not to illusion.
and to death. Shall we bow our heads together for prayer?